Hello and welcome once again to Learning Digital Photography. I'm your host Jason Anderson and you are listening to episode number 44. On this latest show, we've got a bunch of news to catch up on. It's been a while since the last podcast, so there's lots of news to share. We also have a really exciting conversation with Tyler Stableford. He's an extreme nature photographer with many accolades under his belt, and he was kind enough to stop in to talk to us on the show. Of course, we've also got our listener questions for this month, and all that is coming up right after this, so don't go away. Welcome back. Like I said during the teaser, it's been a while since we've had a podcast, so there's a lot of news that's been going on in the photo realm. Rather than try and catch you up on every single piece of photo news, I'm just going to touch upon some big ones or some of the more recent news that I've seen over the last month that have caught my eye. Uh, The first item that I thought warranted discussion on the show is this... um, News from iFi. iFi are the folks that produce SD cards that also carry a wireless signal so you can connect to a wireless network and upload your photos directly to the internet straight from your camera. Uh, Their news, uh, which came out I think a couple weeks ago, was that they're expanding their coverage range for uploading your photos to the web, so you're going to be able to do it for more hotspots all over the country. So that's for those in the U.S. Uh, A lot of spots included Boingo, there were a whole bunch of other ones. I will go ahead and link to the article in the show notes. It's from Network World, and I'll put that link in the show notes so you can find out the different coverage items. One of the cool things I remember from the article is that they actually have one that's proprietary or sold just in the Apple Store. So that's something that's definitely worth uh, looking into for your photo gear, and that way you can connect to, what is it, Mobile Me, I think it's called on the Mac, so you can upload your photos through that realm too. I think the Mac one ran for $80, and uh, they have different coverage plans as well. So I'll link to that article over on the show notes, and you can go check out all the details there. The second piece of news that was interesting is Polaroid is back in the photo business. Well, they never really left, but they're bringing something back. They're bringing back instant photos. So if you've been in photography for a while, or if you remember from a kid, the Polaroids that people would take where you push the button, wait a couple minutes, and the picture would pop out of the camera, they're bringing it back. It's the Polaroid 300. I got this off of pocketlint.com. This is the, uh, it's, um, a news article that talks about this Polaroid thing. You can get the, the film in packs. It's $10, I think, for three packs or ten packs of film or something like that. Like I said, all the details are in this uh, news article that I read online. So I'll go ahead and share that as well. But it just goes to show you that new things are really old things uh, ramped up and changed for the current technology. Although this is using film, so I'm not sure... Uh, what the image qualities are going to be like that comes off of this camera. It'll be interesting to see once that starts shipping. I believe that's shipping this month, actually. So that'll be something fun to see. Uh, The next big news article was the world's largest photo was just created uh, a short time back. It looks like this was just done this month in May. Uh, Wired.com reported on it over at their Gadget Lab. And what they did was they used that Gigapan, and we've talked about this before. I've heard it mentioned over on the TWIP show. And this Gigapan is a device that you set your camera on, and you program the, I think, the top left and the lower right-hand corner of the scene you want to capture. You press the button, and it'll automatically, or automatically, I should say, move your photo or move your camera across the entire range from left to right, up and down, and capture all the photos needed to... um, take this wide-angle, super panorama-type shot. 
and I guess this lar- world's largest photo is one where it would take like 1,600 billboard posters to create something like that. It's just, it's huge. It's like 22 petabytes or gigabytes or it's, it's just something ridiculously huge. I'll throw a link to the Wired.com article in there as well. But it was rather noteworthy because it's, I guess it's some kind of world record and it does relate to photography. So I felt it worthy to share that in the news comments for this episode. There was way too much news. I know it's been a long time and I want to apologize for that. But I'm going to uh, go ahead and shift focus or shift our gears now from the photo news and... Um, move into our, our discussion that we had with Tyler Stableford. Uh, Tyler was recommended to me from the folks over at Adobe, so I know he is an Adobe Lightroom user. We're going to talk to him a little bit about workflow. We'll talk about his gear selection, what kind of gear he uses, uh, how he's gotten into photography. A lot of really good discussions here coming up with Tyler. He's got some great insights to share with everyone, so do stick around for that. You're going to want to hear uh, some of his stories and anecdotes that he has to share with the LDP crowd. So I'll be back in just a minute with Tyler Stableford. Welcome back to Learning Digital Photography. With me on the show today is Tyler Stableford. Tyler is a very accomplished photographer. He's a Canon explorer of light. Uh, he's done a lot of fantastic work, including an exclusive with Colorado's F-16 fighter pilots. Uh, he's had his pictures printed everything from Sports Illustrated to American Photo of the Year honors. There's there's just so much in his gallery. I could go on and on. And rather than do that, we'll just get Tyler on here now and uh, say, first of all, saying uh, thank you very much, Tyler, for coming on the show. Thanks, Tyler. It's great having you. Yeah, hi, Jason. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor to uh, spend time with you. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We're going to be picking your brain here today, though. So prepare for a little bit of digging so we can find out more what goes on inside the head of professional photographers. Feel, feel free. <laughs> all right. Well, the, the first thing that um, kind of springs towards that I'd like to talk about um, is what gets us into photography because we all have kind of these springboards that really get us into things initially. Like I know when I first got into it, I was looking for a gear that met needs that I couldn't meet with point and shoots, that I couldn't meet with my little rinky-dink stuff. And that's what took me into an SLR where I could get the fast shutter speeds that I was looking for. And that was kind of my segue into photography currently. And that's one thing that I've never really asked people before, and I thought with your accomplishments, especially with a lot of your ice photography work, you know, just it's a very intriguing niche that you have, and I'm just kind of wondering, what springboarded you into that? What brought you into that that really piqued your interest? Yeah, um, I, I guess I, I started, you know, pretty early in life. I grew up in Vermont and, um, and then Connecticut, and I always had a really strong interest in the outdoors and hiking, and that turned into climbing and mountaineering. And I was spending so much of my free time, um, and you know, at beautiful places and beautiful mm-hmm. mountain areas, cliffs, uh, you know, you name it. And, and and that was just a huge passion for me. And I think I just started as a snapshot photographer to just to record, you know, the beautiful places and adventures I was having, the friends I was with, and and then um, I I majored in English and was a, was a writer for for some time, and, and still am a little bit. Um, but photography grew. Let's just, you know, as you were relating with it, started getting a DSLR or an SLR camera. Um, for me, the the reach to an SLR camera was so that I could start accompanying my, you know, my my articles and such for newspapers or magazines with photos. It was another aspect of storytelling. Sure. And also, from a business sense, I was there at these locations. I started mostly as a climbing writer. I was in these, you know, hard to reach locations, um, working for various outdoor magazines and. And it was nice to have a camera along, um, both just for the you know for the 
personal storytelling aspect and then also from a business sense I could kind of in a sense double my money if I brought you know if I was able to cover uh, right. stills and the writing sure. and, 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 and that, I, I guess that makes sense because I think when you think about people sending out on location photographers or on location writers better to send one person than two people so yeah that kind of makes sense to actually add that skill set like you said to increase revenue streams and all that kind of stuff yeah so it, so it started that way and then over time I actually enjoyed for a long time, um, I, I actually enjoyed, you know, having a camera with me on, you know, when I'd go on climbing trips, particularly if they were lengthy. Um, it was just really nice to have have photography as a means of doing something other than just thinking about climbing. It was a way of adding an art to the process as well. And you've done you've done a lot. I did unique climbing. I mentioned the ice the ice climbing photography work, and we'll get to that in a minute. But are there any other uh, types of climbing photography that you think are particularly expressive like I, and like I said we'll get to the ice yeah. stuff in a minute because you've really got some amazing ice photography work or ice climbing photography work but I'm yeah. wondering if there's any others that also you've found uh, interesting and rather expressive well I, I think climbing is probably my signature kind of just pursuit you know let's say recreational pursuit in life so right. that, so anytime I have a chance to shoot climbing it's it's a lot of fun for me because I've, you know, I've been doing it since I was a teenager. I guess I've been climbing pretty actively. I'm 35 now, so I've been climbing for over 20 years, and um, and so it's really fun to have a chance to always to, you know, to work with something that um, is just so, you know, so passionate for me, both as recreation and as a profession. That's very cool. I remember I used to go uh, hiking, climbing a lot out in both in Colorado and back in New York. One mountain I climbed was named Gothics. Oh yeah, in New York and. That was the first time I ever climbed something where you actually had to use a cable, <laughs> right, 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 to go up to the peak because the incline was just so steep. And that was those, like, yeah, really beautiful peaks. I, I visited those too. That that was the, that was the first time I ever experienced vertigo. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what people feel. Okay, so it took uh -huh. a minute to get used to that. That's too funny. Yeah. Well, let's see. Um, a couple of the things we wanted to talk about. Um, the first of all, of course, was what springboarded you in photography. Um, I mentioned the Canon Explorer of Light Honors that you, uh, that happened what, just two years ago, last year? I believe it was a couple of years ago, yeah. Two years ago, yeah. That's quite an honor. What got you into the, obviously you shoot Canon gear, what yep. made you decide to pick uh, Canon over other types of gear? Like, did you actually seriously, because you see all these people out there that yep. are such gearheads, you know, right. and they're like, oh, Canon, Nikon, or Pentax, or, you know, Samsung and all that, you know. What made you decide to go with um, Canon gear, and uh, what kind of uh, workflow do you have aside from the gear? Like, you know, do you just oh. take it into Lightroom, or do you take it into Aperture? Or do you yeah, I, I started as a as a Nikon shooter. Uh, maybe that was fifteen years ago or so, and um, I switched over to Canon. Well, maybe it was in you know nineteen ninety eight or sometime around there. I was working mm -hmm. the photo editor at Climbing Magazine. And at the time, of course, it was film, and so I was judging the quality of images that were coming in, um, and and generally, you know, just looking at the slides that you know all these dozens of photographers were submitting, and and at the time, so this is no judgment whatsoever to to today because I, I haven't compared notes at all between cameras then, but at the time, um, you know, it looked like the the Canon glass in the lenses that I was interested in specifically right. um, better, so I, I sold my gear and switched over to to Canon then. So but I have no, you know, I have I have no way of doing any type of accurate testing since that decade ago when I switched over. 
Um, okay. So so when you made your decision to move to the Canon gear, that was primarily because of the quality of photos at that time. It wasn't just it was the yeah, it was the glass quality that I was that I was seeing. Oh, you know, okay. to, my, to my needs and my I, I can't claim any sense of scientific right. you know, Oh yeah. And, th- and things change so much. Like like yeah. Nikon will do something that leapfrogs Canon and then Canon will do something that leapfrogs Nikon, and then Pentex will come out of somewhere and they'll leapfrog both of them. Right. So it was always this leapfrogging thing anyway. One thing I've always mentioned to people in the past that it really does it's not the gear that matters, it's who's behind the gear and your vision of the world and that kind of you know, and how you process things and making things your own, that kind of stuff. What about your post processing? Do you use Lightroom, Photoshop, Aperture? You know, yeah. What's your, um, what's your standard workflow like? Yeah, Lightroom is definitely the has become the backbone of, of our workflow. And and when the you know, when the processing software first came out, you know, it was Aperture and Lightroom and such and, and um my first assistant, uh Draper White and I, you know, tested things very very thoroughly to, to see what you know what software might work best for us. Mm-hmm. And um you know, in, in all um, honesty, Lightroom just was, you know, was doing an outstanding job of, of being able to give us a lot of latitude in our processing of our raw photos and um, just absolutely, you know, kind of fell in love with that software. And yeah. I, yeah, thought, I thought Lightroom 2 was a huge, you know, a huge, big jump too. And um, just the things I've seen in Lightroom 3 as well have been, you know, have been really oh, exciting. Okay. So anyway, um, that's, that's, that's real the backbone of our, you know, of our workflow. And then we... We'll bring things into Photoshop, of course. Um, you know, when we make our final selects in a client that we, you know, we shoot an assignment says, okay, well, we want you know these five photos from the day. You know, we'll bring it into Photoshop for sure, and then we'll you know do any type of of you know of large work there, whether right. that's you know, big removals or color adjustments or composite spot details that you normally you have to it. clean up, right? Do you use any kind of other uh, third-party plugins or filters or things like noise reduction or? Do you pretty much go with in-camera settings and? Yeah, I go with in-camera settings, um, and I, I I don't use a lot of plugins for the main reason. Um, and both myself and, and um, primarily my first assistant Draper, um, who works with me full time, has become so so skilled at you know with using Lightroom and Photoshop that pretty much every image we do for a client is a kind of a customized process for our top images you know when we're presenting say five or ten images from a day's shoot that you know um so no and and, and the, you know i think that the you know the noise reduction particularly in lightroom three you know the sharpening oh, and the processing it's it's outstanding so it currently is, yeah, yeah we don't have any we don't have any need to go to go elsewhere cool cool so you keep the 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 it sounds like your uh, typical workflow is Kind of minimalist, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, where you try and keep things to a minimum, where you're really trying to capture things in camera. That's cool because that's, well, what, that's yeah, what I hear a lot of people talking about. Though I'm not sure. I mean, we are trying to capture things in camera, but very much we, you know, we use a lot of processing to our photos too. And, sure. And so sure. I'll put. I'll definitely say that. That I mean, I love experimenting with things in in Photoshop, and we frequently composite, you know, or add or drop subjects or scenes or oh, trees. Okay. Things you do, whatever to, to our scenes. Um, yeah, we're in the locations taking the photos, but I'd say probably ninety percent, if not ninety nine percent, of my commercial clients, you know, request um, some type of you know major Photoshop work to photos. You know, if we're shooting skiers, they say, oh, let's add a second person. You know, this scene. Oh, okay, okay, I got you. Uh, let's crop out that distro, remove that distracting tree, or that you know that guy who's 
bent over in the background who just skied into the scene just as just as we didn't want him to or whatever. Exactly. So, and I, I would imagine that happens more often than many people would. Realize. Yeah, it happens all the time. Yeah. So I wouldn't call I wouldn't call it minimalist our processing. We'll spend a lot of time on our okay. you know images for a look and um and, and and honestly that's one of the great joys. I'm I love the fact that I can go to a you know go to a location and yes it's a you know beautiful outdoor location. Um, but if we're not limited to what we capture with one millisecond of the frame, you know, the shutter opening and closing. We can, right. we can, we can work with all the elements that we that we see that day, and maybe put those into one final final scene. Um, and of course, that's just you know, some people's ethos like it, some people don't. Um, that's the beauty of you know, yeah. I guess, cre creative expression. Exactly, and I, I think a lot of it also could hit on something you'd said there about uh, you know, if a client asks for a particular, you know, type of scene to be created. You deliver what the client wants. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, that's when it's paying the paycheck kind of mentality. You know, you got to give them what they're asking for. Otherwise, you're not going to have a paycheck kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's the reason they've hired me, too. Is exactly. Yeah. Because they know, and this is how I pitch them. I say, I can, I can capture all the elements from a day into, into the, something that suits your brand. You know, we're not right. limited to just one, as I said, one millisecond of capturing. Oh, boy, we missed it. Well, you know, Come back let's tomorrow. Try, let's try again next year. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> let's try again next year. That'll be another twenty grand or whatever, right? Yeah. So no. So the clients, you know, pretty much the clients are absolutely thrilled when we say, you know what, you know, we just missed that second skier by a millisecond, but we can, you know, push them up so open, put them where you want them, and whatever. Um, cool. And, you know, so cool. you know, anyway, that's yeah. It, it's been a real fun process for us. Now, do you do? Do you ever do uh, go out and do any kind of shooting just for your own, or is all your work? pretty much client-driven at this point? A little bit. Um, I don't do a lot. I'll shoot some fine art nudes and stuff just because that's, you know, it's always fun to do. Um, mm -hmm. But that's about, you know, I, I hardly even pick up the camera for my kids. They're two and four and huh. the world's worst, you know, dad photographer. Uh, <laughs> because I really try to take time off. Um, yeah. I'm, at some point, I'm, you have to put the camera down. I hear you. You, you will not see me in my free time with a camera around my, my shoulder. Right. Uh, and it's not because I don't enjoy it. It's just that there's no, I can't think of one single thing in my life that I'd want to do, you know, 12 hours a day for seven days a week. It just, right. I like variety. Exactly. And I think that that kind of variety is important. And you do need to have some downtime where you de-stress and you, you know, just, you know, you take your mind off your work for a while and enjoy other other aspects of life because life isn't all about one thing ever. So, yeah, that's, that's yeah. definitely some good advice. Definitely cool. some good advice. Well, the uh, other question I wanted to ask you uh, with regard to the photography landscape, and you kind of hinted at this when you said you first started taking a camera along just for your own stuff when you were doing the hiking slash writing uh, line of work, uh, is this new convergence we're seeing with video. Do you, are you ever thinking, well, geez, maybe I'll have to start getting some video captures along with the stills to go with the writing and... You know, is is that entering in, into your um, portfolio of work that you're offering clients? It, it has been. It, it's been entering in a, in a very large way recently. Um, cool. Most recently, I just actually um, premiered a 13-minute short film documentary um, just five days ago um, at the Five Point Film Festival here in Colorado. So it was, I created an entirely you know DSLR film documentary on a um, a wounded warrior, uh, 101st Airborne Army Ranger who had his legs blown off from a grenade blast in Iraq oh, some seven years ago wow. and never really skied. He grew as a Virginia Army boy and um, never really skied growing up. And he came out to a wounded veteran's ski camp in Aspen run by Challenge Aspen. Oh, this was maybe five years ago. Right. 
and um, discovered just a real joy and talent for uh, adaptive ski racing you know, as a sit skier in a you know mm-hmm. sit in a mono ski chair right and became one of the best ski racers in the world and skied his way to the Paralympics this winter and it was a real you know just a beautiful story of, of loss and discovery and you know some unknown treasures that he discovered along the way wow. and so anyway this is a this is a, a film called the fall line and I shot it you know entirely with the 5D Mark II and the 1D Mark IV cameras, and nice. I, I hired uh, Kent Harvey, who's a, uh, a, a good friend in my hometown, an a outstanding cinematographer, and he, he mentored me and my staff in the, the art of filmmaking along the way. Uh, nice. A great video editor named Dave Ruck from Denver, who's just a really you know talented storyteller. Um, so we, we created a really great piece, of, you know, a great story that I'm that I'm excited about, and it won uh, won one of the festival's awards for oh. most inspiring film. Congratulations, that's awesome. Is there a link where people can go and find out about that online? There will be. Um, first, what I'm doing is showing it um, on DVD and Blu-ray to you know to top clients because I want to preserve the theater experience. Sure. Uh, sure. It probably let's say for the first month or two, okay. uh, for the main reason that watching a film on a web, you know, when your email's pinging around and your phone's ringing and yeah. It's, you know the buffers choppy. It's just not as not as good as an experience. So I want the key people to see it. You know, in a theater experience first. That actually brings up a good question. Is that how you uh, approach things? All your client presentations uh, in that in that sort of um, controlled environment type atmosphere. Is that well, what you try and keep in mind, or do you have deliverables where you deliver them out on the web? Or it's nice, but no. I, I, almost everything I do is you know is a web based or email based delivery. You know, or FTP oh, okay. site of a folder. I mean, you know, there's nothing to replace FaceTime, and I certainly try to do that as much as possible. I'm based in Western Colorado, you know. Yeah, you're out there. You're out in where? You're out in Carbondale? Yeah, Carbondale. That's a ways out there. I think I looked it up on the map the other day because I was like, I've heard of that. Where is it? You're like three hours west of Denver. I'm three hours west of where you are in Denver area. I was like, holy cow, he's out there. It's out there. Um, it's cool. the center of the universe once you get here, but it's uh, it's not not easy to get here. <laughs> yeah, you must wake up to some stunning scenery every morning. Yeah, we, oh, we live geez. below um, Mount Sopras. It's the largest vertical oh, rise in Colorado. We have about a though six and a half thousand or seven thousand foot rise from from town to this beautiful uh, twin summited peak, and so it's you know. It's a pretty gorgeous place. How, how many times have you climbed that peak? <laughs> um, not probably not as much as I as I should. It's always you know a great time, but I I think I've been up at maybe three or four times, and oh, wow. you know, a couple of those with with skis to ski down in the spring. Wow. So how do you stay connected? Being out in the middle of nowhere, do you, are you on a? Do you get like Comcast, like cable internet or yeah, like yeah, satellite I mean, or? Yeah, I mean we're super high speed internet and such, and um, and and so you know that that's oh, easy. Okay. Um, in terms of, and then, you know, I stay connected also in the sense that a large, you know, the far, vast majority of my clients um, want their images shot in the Aspen area. So, you know, we have the local, you know, Aspen crew and I shoot for the Aspen, you know, skiing company or the Aspen Snowmass Tourism Boards. And, um, you know, it's a really vibrant, you know, photography scene here. And we're, we're three hours from Moab, Utah. So we have, you know, within a day's range, we can shoot beautiful desert scenery, you know, in February for a summer, summer catalog, or we can shoot at 12,000 feet for, you know, for a winter catalog well into May or June. Um, so we have a, you know, a really great range of, of locations and, and talent here. Is that kind of what made you uh, center around the Carbondale area? Was it all the variety that you could choose from within a day's drive or whatever? Yeah, I came out, um, I had a job offer working for Climbing Magazine, which was based here, and that was right. maybe 14 years ago. So that's what drew me out here. Cool. Um, but as a freelance photographer, you know, I, 
my family and I, we could probably live anywhere, you know, in, within reason in the country, but um, right. to make a living. But really, this has been, uh, this is, you know, this is the place we want to live. We have five ski areas within 30 miles of the house. And, oh, um, all, the, all the skiers that listen are going, I want to move there. <laughs> yeah, so um, so it's a pretty darn good place. That's awesome. Well, it's been, speaking of staying connected, because you had mentioned you do a lot of delivery over the web, whether it's an FTP site or uh, other means. Do you connect with clients through any of those social media outlets like Twitter and Facebook and MySpace and yeah, that's something I've been. Do- have, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's something I've been doing uh, quite a bit of. Let's say in the last year, or, or starting to do quite a bit of. So um, I've I have a news blog, and I've just started, you know, in the last oh six months, doing you know being more active on Facebook and and Twitter and um, you know maybe I'm sure I certainly wasn't the fastest person to adopt it. You know. Mm-hmm. You, been much more on top of that, um, for, you know, from what I've seen of your work, and and it does seem like that's, you know, not only is it a great way to learn and to stay in touch, but I've had a lot of photographers say that you know they end up getting um, commercial jobs too from yeah. from just from the word of mouth that spreads from being, you know, being on those networks. Do you think that because you'd also mentioned FaceTime? Do you think uh, these social connections, whether it's via Twitter or Facebook or MySpace or whatever, do you think that'll ever replace FaceTime? Because I think some people. Need to have FaceTime, like yeah. I don't you think don't it sell them until you're place. in front of them, kind of thing. So I don't think. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What? Oh no problem. Yeah, I, I don't think it will ever replace. But something I am, um, you know, let's just say happy to see too is that on you know Facebook and stuff, it it definitely allows a little more of a personal expression. You know, and you see people post you know favorite quotes of theirs online and such, and you know, I think a little more of the human spirit does come out. Um, on, on Facebook and you know and through these and through these blogs than than we had before you know when yeah. things were maybe filtered only through a print you know a print you know medium where there was an interview and a journalist and well the magazine only has you know forty five pages of edit edit pages they can run that issue and so you know not as much information can come out and not as many people can share their personal stories so right. so I'm really excited about you know yeah what I've seen happening. That's very cool, and I guess the kind of speaking to that subject, if a, if um, someone who is coming new into photography, some young person coming out of high school or just coming into photography as an enthusiast looking to make a go at going pro, I pity the fool. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. But how would you suggest they approach pity magazines, whether it's Climbing Magazine or Arizona Highways or Pick Your Magazine, National Geographic, or whoever? Yeah. You know, if someone was looking to enter into those genres, do you have any kind of suggestions as far as well, yeah. how to parlay, you know, social connections or network connections, whatever, into I yeah, guess, I have, gigs? I think I have two suggestions for that. One is to, I think it's probably a, a good business decision and also a good personal decision to to find a niche of photography that you're really passionate about mm-hmm. um, first. And, and then to, so a you want to pursue you know magazines, newspapers, website you know companies or whatever that feature work in your niche, sure. um, and and the reason for that is a most importantly that's where your talent set is. So so you're going to be you have the greatest capacity for success in that arena, and b um, you know when you're working hour number sixteen of that day, you know hmm. hopefully it won't feel like work because you've got a passion for it as well. Right. So those. Otherwise, you know, when I've tried to branch out, you know, my kind of internal voice, you know, and, and I'm sure anybody's will, will let you know that it's not something that you love doing. And, and, and the, you know, photography is just not something that you can do 
nine to five, let's say, you know, or start out in it and, and make a living. Um, even if you are, you know, even if you've been doing it for, I don't know, any successful shooters, you know, right. for it's not a, at least a 50 hour a week profession, um, all of which is fine. It, it's really not that, you know, difficult as jobs go. But um, anyway, you know, so it's a good idea to, to, to define and discover and work in your, in your favorite niche of photography, because that's both where you're going to excel and also where it's going to, you know, reward you the most. Right. Well, it'll uh, stay fun even during the long days because it's what you enjoy. Right. Yeah. Another sense. thing, um, my friend Corey Rich, who's a, you know, fellow adventure photographer, had a great uh, quote about when he was starting off and, and I had the pleasure of getting to know with him and work with him when he was in photo school in, in California. Um, he would get stock requests from magazines, you know, let's say it's Backpacker, or National Geographic Adventure or whatever, right. about, hey, we need some photos of, you know, hiking and you name it in the Sierra or, you know, Tuolumne Meadows or something. Um, and he said he would use those stock requests as his self-assignments for that weekend and go out and shoot those. Because when you know that a magazine has a, you know, has a stock request, particularly if you see a couple of different magazines over the years requesting certain locations, you know that they're popular mm -hmm. and that they're, they're perennial needs. So. Right. Uh, and, and I, I, would, I thought that was a pretty good, you know, pretty good piece of advice um, that Corey used was to go out and, you know, shoot um, based on stock requests, even if he didn't have that, that piece. So that, that was, uh, you said those are the two key things is shoot based on common requests and finding a niche. Yeah, cool. Cool. I think those are two, you know, that's two things that I would tell someone starting out is, you know, is to, um, is to yeah, create a lot of self-assignments and you can make those based on, you know, stock requests because that's a fairly good gauge of, you know, what, what the industry in your niche is looking for. Right. Yep. Right. Very cool. Well, I know a lot of the, the kinds of um, personal assignments that I've, uh, I've done in the past with um, different types of photography, like most recently, was a trip down to White Pocket, Arizona. And, you know, it was just a really great time and I had a really good friend that, navigated me around but I also noticed that as I after I got back I had all these photographs that I was working on and I kind of started to, to become personally attached to them uh-huh you know where it's like hey look I took this great shot and I did the post processing and there was a lot of time and money and investment spent on these things yes so it's hard for me <laughs> to separate myself from my work and especially to be objective so and I, right. I think that's kind of the segue to my next question is how can you be objective about your work? Like if you pour your heart and soul into all this stuff, you know, whether it's the scouting and the research and the prep work and the post-production time, because you said you do a lot of that too. Right. You know, how do you distinguish which ones are your best? Like if you had to pick your favorite yeah. shot out of your entire career, could you do right. that? You know, I, yeah, don't, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. And it, it brings up, a, I'm laughing, it's a funny story because I think that's very true. And then I can answer your question on two levels, but on, first on a, you know, a purely Go with both. Go with both. Level. Um, I have a, a, a photo that was a favorite of mine, and it probably still is, of a, um, of a, a lobsterman I took in Connecticut on a small boat. And, um, and I just thought it exemplified everything I had been reaching for in terms of environmental portraiture that was real, and, but also rugged and you know, a little bit scrappy, but a little bit polished. And, mm -hmm. and I thought he had a great expression. And my studio manager at the time, Janet Kotwas, who's just a really talented you know, editor and has a good vision for things, she said, Tyler, you got to pull that from your portfolio. It's just not your strongest shot. And I said, what are you, are you joking? This is just like this great shot. And it's a beautiful black and white tone. We don't have a lot of that, you know. Um, and, you know, and, I, and, and sure enough, I was asking around. And, and I think the opinion was, gen, was generally the same. But I think that's, that's one, you know, concrete example where I think um, I, I would have placed it in, you know, my top 10 photos, let's say. And um, several other people did not. 
Um, that doesn't mean it's not a good photo or it's not, you know, one of my favorites still, but um, it definitely didn't measure up to, let's say, five or six other people when, when I polled them. So the, the long answer to your question is, you know, I don't think we can be entirely objective. And for me, you know, my, my website and my business is here to attract business clients. So it's, it's not, this is not my poetry journal space, you know, for experimental or creative photography. It's a space that, that I'm hoping to, you know, feed my family and make a living. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, I'm in my passionate, you know, realm, I'm hoping, with, with what I'm doing. Um, but I want every image up there just to be the, you know, to produce the best response from a client, not, not from me. So, you know, so that lobsterman photo got yanked. And then happily so, no, no issues with that. Interesting. It's, it, it's a very interesting perspective to see that kind of distinction made between personal favorites and professional bests. Yeah. That's interesting. So what would you say was your best shot professionally then? The, I'm sorry. So, what would you say was your best shot from a professional perspective? Oh boy, um, I guess I've, I've seen a couple in your portfolio where I'm just like, oh my god. Yeah, I think the that? I think the shot of Mark Jenkins exploring inside an ice cave in Iceland um, cool. has probably you know been the most successful from a professional perspective. There's probably um, I can't remember like you know an art director, even like kind of the jaded New York ones or whatever you know who who, who haven't been you know kind of just stopped by that photo. Um, and I've, I've probably lost that sense of wonder for it, but I, I definitely see it in, you know, every time somebody sees that photo for the first time. When an art director stops on it, you know you found a winner. Yeah, <laughs> then, then they say, well, you're not shooting anything in our niche, so it's great to see your nice photos, but I'm um, sorry, we don't have any work for you. Oh, man, that was neat. <laughs> oh, I'd be like, well, thank you for your time. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, Ty, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you coming on. Um, one of the last question I wanted to kind of uh, kind of throw out at you was you had mentioned that you don't do a lot of personal work because when you're done with it, you put your camera down and you step yeah. away from photography. And it's interesting because a lot of the listening audience here at uh, Learning Digital Photography and myself as well, photography for us is our hobby. We're enthusiasts. It's not our professional venue, well, at least not yet for many of us. Yeah. So. For us, that's not really our escape. That's like that's what our escape is, is photography. Sure. But for you, that's your job. So once you're finished with your job, how do you escape from the photography realm? You know, you said you, like you turn off, you shut down, you go away from it. Yeah. What do you do when you're not doing photography? Yeah, well, for, for, the, for the majority of my, let's say, you know, teenage and adult life, uh, photography was my hobby and my passion. And I was, you know, taking every, you know, free minute I had in my free time and every, you know, dollar of savings to, you know, to get the new gear and, you know, kind of working to fund my photography addiction. Um, and that has switched or now, I'm, you know, um, shooting quite a bit professionally. So, um, so I can definitely identify with that. And, and so again, I'll, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. One is, um, when I'm teaching, you know, workshops or students, I, I really encourage people, and this is the same for me and in my expression, you know, my free time, is to use photography as you know as therapy as a process of of creating joy in in your life and that and and so to understand it's not always about getting the best image it's about enjoying the whole process of planning a trip somewhere you know of of, of picking out your gear for that of making the travels and even if you get there and it rains just the fact that you had a week of thinking about something other than you know your job or what, you know whatever it is somebody who said a, a nasty comment to you last week. You're, you're engaged in a, in a creative process. And I think that process itself is so, you know, healing and wonderful in our lives. So 
Um, and so for, for me, now that I'm shooting full time, I, you know, I have had to find other things um, to provide that sense of escape and, and thing. And that's been a fun journey in itself. So I, I've come back now to to skiing and climbing, and and on those you know on those trips, even on when when I'm in the most beautiful areas, um, I don't bring a camera. Sometimes I'll bring an S90 pocket you know point and shoot um, you know that I can right. take some snapshots of me and my buddy. You know, I was about to say you don't take any cameras with you. Come on. We yeah, have but really, ninety percent of the time I, I don't, and I'm in these beautiful really? spots. I was out climbing, uh, well, Tuesday evening, uh, just two days ago, and just a gorgeous, you know, sunset. And my my friend is climbing on this nice overhanging route above me, and the you know the sky is kind of this you know orange mackerel sky. And um, yeah, it could have you know absolutely well great if I had a camera with me. I'm sure I could have made you know some number of dollars on the shot and it would have been a nice photo of him, but I was really glad I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have the camera either too, because it's nice to be a, a, you know, an experiencer and a witness without turning it into, um, what for me is now, now work. So, so I'd say climbing and skiing have been, you know, really nice, um, regenerative, rejuvenative things for me. And, and I've, um, been doing, I, I meditate daily and that finds, you know, I, I really find that to be a nice exploration. And, cool. and I guess above all, that's given me a real, sense of understanding for how just the process of, of anything in, in life, whether that's relationships or work itself, and particularly photography, is a process and that we should find joy sure. in that process, not in the end result of, you know, showing a friend an image and them saying, I like it, you know, as people think that's the ultimate goal, you know, or to get recognition in a, you know, a magazine or, or a blog or whatever, you know, for an image. And, and I think that's probably the, you know, the least important of the of the things that, that we should be seeking in our, you know, in our art. Wow. That's, that's pretty profound. That's the least important aspect. That's interesting. I hadn't I mean, it's of... critical if you're trying to make a living, of course, but in terms well, of, right. But in terms of personal our, enjoyment and satisfaction, it's the yes, process more than our personal more. enjoyment and our, you know, yeah. Our... And that's so, and that's so funny because I remember when I picked up my first camera and it was probably 20 years ago, it was a, I think it was a Vivitar 110. So it yeah. wasn't even a 35 millimeter camera. It was a Vivitar 110. It was fascinated that I could like take pictures of it and I could do different things. And I remember I, the first thing I ever tried where it was like creative was when I put my sunglasses in front of it uh-huh. to try to apply some <laughs> right. kind of filter. I was like, why does this look better with my sunglasses? Maybe uh-huh. if I put my sunglasses in front of the camera, it'll look that way too. And I tried right. and got the picture back and it kind of worked. And I was like, yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, so, but the, like you said, the creative process along the way is probably one of the most exciting parts of it. Very cool. Very cool stuff. Well, Tyler, thanks again for uh, stopping in to talk oh, yeah. to the listening audience here. Uh, we usually wrap up with a couple questions on where you are, where people can find your work, best ways to get in contact with you kind of thing. Your Great. website is at? Uh, that's at tylerstableford.com. And we'll spell that out, and we'll get you a link in the show yeah. notes. Uh, T-Y-L-E-R-S-T-A-B-L-E-F-O-R-D.com. Dot com. Like and I, I said, we'll a, throw a link up in the show notes for that. So, yeah, I have a, um, a news blog at tylerstableford.com slash news. Okay. And on there, I've, I've posted, I have some, uh, you know, I do a fair bit of, of lecturing around the country uh, for Canon and Adobe, which has been a lot of fun. I have a, a bunch of talks coming up in uh, Portland and Boston and some workshops in Boulder and Moab uh, in June and October. Oh, very cool. And you know, they'll be speaking, I believe, at the Photo Plus Expo in, you know, in New York in uh, October as well. So my news blog is a good way to find out you know, uh, where I'm presenting. Yeah. Very cool. And you said you are on Twitter now or not? 
I guess I am. And your Twitter is uh, twitter.com forward slash tstableford? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> my studio manager could tell you the, the answer to that. Um, um, I think it's, it's either T. Stableford or Tyler Stableford, yeah. We can look that up. I'll throw, I'll throw links okay, to all, the, all your contact points in the show notes, so no worries. But my face, Twitter, Facebook, yeah, I'm on Facebook under okay. Tyler Stableford Photography. Okay. And I would imagine it's not like a Joe Smith where it's going to be difficult to find. You're probably not. Yeah, I think there's only one of me in the oh, country. Well, there you go. Good for you. You're the only one. My names. Well, I wish people search more. for Jason Anderson. There's, there's a baseball, there's like four baseball players, three football players. I'm like 10 pages back on Google. That's how common my name is. Yeah, but at least people can spell it right the first time. That, that counts for something. I guess a little bit. Well, listen, <laughs> thanks a lot for coming on the show. Folks, this has been Tyler Stableford. We'll be back in just a minute. Thank you very much. Talk to you later. Thanks. And thanks again to Tyler Stableford for uh, coming onto the show and spending some time talking with us. It was a lot of fun. I'll share... Uh, links to his bio and his web uh, site as well as the discussions that we had in the show notes as well uh, wrapping things up for this week we do have a couple of listener questions that I wanted to get to the first one comes to us from Crystal Crystal writes in and is saying she's having trouble getting her images to look good in a digital frame that she purchased uh, she mentioned it's a 10 inch pan digital frame and everything looks like the dimensions or the adjustments aren't right. What can I do to correct this? This is actually a really good question. I actually have uh, configured these digital frames for friends and family that have had similar problems. You're basically talking about the aspect ratio getting skewed or crunched or stretched to where the th there's a lot of distortion in the images. And you have to be careful with these digital frames. And looking at the Pan Digital site, because she had mentioned that she was using the Pan Digital there are a couple different 10 inch frames and the one that I'm looking at, the first one on their website is the PanDigital 1002W02T uh, this retails for about $140 the native screen resolution native screen resolution I should say is 1024 by 768 so it maintains that 4-3 aspect ratio uh, that's the standard monitor size for a 17 or 19 inch monitor that's not spe specifically set up as a uh, widescreen format so this is the standard 4-3 ratio and you just want to make sure that when you're cropping your images down you crop them down to the standard size uh, resolution for the specific model number that you're looking at uh, that one is the PAN 1002W02T. If that's not your model number, Crystal, I would suggest going to pandigital.net. Uh, that's their website, and you can look at all their 10-inch frames. They've only got three, and the two other ones, are, it's a 10.4, a 10.1, and another 10.4. And then just looking at the specs on the other two, it looks like uh, the other one is an 800 by 480 so that's a 16 by 10 ratio or a 4 by 5 ratio. 4 by 5? Something like that, yeah, 4 by 5 ratio. And then the third one is an 800 by 600, so that goes back to the 4 by 3 ratio. So depending on which one you're using, you're going to have to crop to a different aspect ratio or native resolution so that it will look good on your frame. It's a great question, and it's actually a very common thing uh, that a lot of people have asked about in the past. Uh, it's a great time to bring that up now, though, because it was just conducive for this show. Uh, the second question that came into us comes from Michael. Michael writes in saying he's using an older Canon PowerShot 
and needs some replacement batteries. He wants to know if it's safe to use third-party AAAs, or should he try and find a Canon battery through places like eBay, because Canon doesn't make it anymore. Uh, he was saying to me in the email that this is a PowerShot E3 or C3, I forget what model number he referenced. Uh, it's a great question, actually, because this does speak to the ever-changing face of technology. And when it comes to the power supplies that you use for your gear, whether it's a proprietary battery or it's more standard battery like the AA and the AAA and the C batteries and things like that, you want to try and make sure that you don't give your gear too much juice. Uh, he's saying this is an older Canon power shot, so I'd be a little hesitant uh, to use the, uh, the, the newer AAAs that have like super power to them because they could leak, it could damage the camera. However, it is a, a cost-benefit analysis kind of thing there. So if you look at the cost of the camera versus getting a replacement camera, the other aspect of it is that AA batteries are pretty much a standard size. They will, usually will give a standard discharge rate or a standard power ratio through their 1.5, I think it's 1.5 milliamps or something like that per battery. So you probably shouldn't have too much problem if you wanted to use the AAAs, but there's always a, a double-edged side to that coin because some of the newer AAAs do have more power that the older cameras might not be capable of managing internally. So depending on the cost, you know, it's the cost of the, of the camera itself versus the cost of the battery. You know, if you can't find a replacement battery, the proprietary battery, or if the proprietary battery is way too expensive, you probably are going to have to go with the AA route. Um, I would look at eBay, see what the prices are, and look at the cost of some rechargeable AA's. I wouldn't go with the most current AA's. I'd try and go something a little bit older, like the NICAD batteries. Uh, those would probably work. Or you could just use standard alkaline batteries as well. I believe alkaline batteries would be probably the safest and most economical bet. You can get 10 packs of those for like $5 these days. So if it was up to me, I would choose the AA's, but your mileage may vary depending on what you can find on eBay and what types of AA batteries you could get. Uh, it really is kind of a personal preference question for me. I just go with the AA since it is an older camera, but uh, like I said, your mileage may vary. It's a good question, though. It was some, something worth discussing here briefly on the show, so thank you to Michael for writing in with that question. Our last question comes to me, I think, I forget his name. He wrote in via email. And, Sorry, whoever you are, I forget your name because I put this all in show notes. But his question, it was a really good question. I'll just read his question verbatim. A friend and I are working on a photo project together for school. Since we both contributed to it extensively, how do we decide who gets the copyright? It doesn't seem fair to assign copyright solely based on who trips the shutter. What should we do? Great question. I should probably head things off the pass here, though, and say I am not a lawyer, so I'm not qualified to really give legal advice on something like this. But it would seem to me that if you both contributed extensively to the project and the project is dually owned, there's no reason why you can't dually own copyright. Um, it's my understanding, at least, of uh, copyright law and how it works is that if you share copyright ownership of an image, either one of you can sell it or do whatever you want with it. You just need to split those proceeds with the other person. You don't need the other person's permission to sell it. You don't need the other person's permission to license it or to sell prints of it or anything, you would just need to share the proceeds of it. If you want to transfer copyright to one person exclusively, you can do that. Uh, that would speak to registering it with the Copyright Office, though, which is something I would recommend. But until you register that, with the co that copyright with the Copyright Office or pr 
put together some kind of legal documentation stating who has exclusive copyright privileges to it, I believe that that is owned jointly. I am not 100% sure on that, though, so if anyone does have any questions, comments, or insights that they can share, feel free to share them with the show. Um, that's going to do it for today. Actually, that's uh, quite a bit. We've been going on for almost an hour now. Uh, let me give you the ways that you can contact the show. So if you do have any questions, comments, or insights that you'd like to share, uh, the best way actually is to the new 800 number. You can contact the show at 866-809-8663. If you download our uh, new podcast application on your iPhone or iPod Touch, uh, you can call, well actually not on the touch, but you can call the show straight from your iPhone. I think it's $1.99 in the App Store or something like that. So look for uh, Learning Digital Photography, uh, the application in the iTunes Store for a buck ninety-nine. You can follow us on Twitter. You can call the show. You can email the show directly from either device. So that's pretty cool stuff there. That's the best way to get a hold of the show. The second best way is to actually comment uh, over on the blog, over at canonblogger.com. Share question, comments feedback and insights with me there as well and then the last way of course is through email you can always get in touch with me via my email address which is jason at canonblogger.com thanks for tuning into this week's show it's been a lot of fun i'll try to get back more um, hopefully sooner than a month from now but no guarantees got a lot of different strings uh, in the uh, pond right now a lot of different uh, projects going on so we'll get back as soon as we can thank you for everyone's patience uh, while waiting for the podcast to come out uh, like I said, I'll be back hopefully sooner rather than later. But that's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Take care, everyone. Happy shooting. Bye.